Uh, there's no shame in using your table of contents. It's a very small book. It's only like two pages long in most Bibles. If you're using one of the Bibles that we have at the entrance to the theater, it's on page 502. Uh, since it's Mother's Day, I thought this would be a really fitting passage um, to preach. Jonah's in the belly of a fish. And since Jonah's being in someone's belly, and we've all been in someone's belly at one point, right, our mamas, I thought, why not Jonah 2 on Mother's Day, right? This is the strategic planning on my part, okay? I get, okay, it's a stretch. I get it. Whatever. I'm trying. All right. So now that you've opened to Jonah chapter 2, uh, if you would rise to your feet, I'm going to read this, these 10 verses here. We're just, we just stand out of respect for God's word. Uh, you see that pattern in scripture. Um, so we're going we're gonna to do that as well here. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds were wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remember the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Father, this morning we ask that you'd be really gracious to us and speak to us through your word, that your spirit would really protect us in this place, and that you would speak to us, reveal yourself to us, God. We want to hear from you, Lord, I pray that we'd want to hear from you. Not only we want to hear from you, Lord, that we would want to uh, live into it. So God, would you speak to people this morning who feel like they're in the pit and bring them out. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for standing. <coughs> um, in chapter 1, verse 17, I didn't read it. It's the verse right before this. It says, God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. It says God appoints different things at different times in this book. Here, God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. Uh, to say the least, that sounds like an awful experience. I'm guessing it, you know, smelled like an outhouse at a state fair in there or something. You know, it's probably not a great experience for Jonah. But guys, um, this is, again, I talked about this last week. This is where we kind of get hung up a little bit. Like, oh, here's the story about the fish. It's not about the fish. The fish is like hardly even mentioned. It's not embellished at all. It's just matter-of-factly stated two verses. It's not about the fish. It's a story about God. God called Jonah to go. God brought the storm. God appointed the fish. God speaks to the fish. The fish throws up. God is the one driving the narrative forward. 
okay? And here in this narrative, we see a prophet, and he's trying to run from God. And what we find this morning, again, is not God punishing Jonah for his running. It's not what the fish is doing. But God is providing salvation for Jonah in the most unlikely of places. Do you see this? God is orchestrating a circumstance in history to teach Jonah something. But he's not wanting to simply teach Jonah something. God is actually wanting to make Jonah someone. See, some of the most important things that we've learned in our lives that have shaped us are the results of deep and dark circumstances, aren't they? They were things that were awful at the time, but have really done a tremendous amount of good in our lives that we would never have experienced had we not gone through that thing. And uh, childbirth is a great example of that, actually. I mean, how many women, probably maybe all of them, I, I, I don't know that for a fact, but how many women in the middle of childbirth looked at their husbands and yelled, I'm never doing this again. And the moment that child is laid on their chest, they go, I wanna have another one. You know, just the pain of the moment, of that circumstance, going through it, brings you so much good and joy that you would never have had if you hadn't gone through that experience. Maybe you haven't had a baby before, right? I know at least 50% of you in this room haven't, right? Uh, but maybe you lost a job and it felt like your world was falling apart. But now you look back and you might even say, that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. Or you went through a terrible breakup and it really hurt. But you look back and you see all the good that came from it now. Or, or maybe you were found out about some secret that you were harboring and hiding from everybody else and there was so much pain that was experienced when you felt that shame, when you were exposed, but now you're like, that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened to me. Or maybe you actually got the very thing that you've been wanting all along, you actually got it. So you never thought it would be a bad thing, but the bad thing is that you got it and it didn't fulfill you like you thought it was going to fulfill you. Uh, the great theologian, right, Jim Carrey, the actor, right, famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that it's not the answer. You might go, oh, I, I get that. Maybe you're in the place of pain right now this morning and you feel like you're in a prison. But our passage this morning asks the question of you, what if those places of pain aren't prisons but they're actually hospitals? What if it's not a prison this morning? What if it's a hospital? That's Jonah's experience. And maybe you'll relate to Jonah. There's really just two movements through this prayer. Uh, you'll see it on the screen behind me. You see the descent into the watery grave, and then you see this ascent onto dry land. And there's a turning point here that we can't miss. So first, the descent into the watery grave. In verse 17 of chapter one, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Um, most of us don't read Hebrew, okay? I don't even read Hebrew. But there's something interesting here. There's like this really strong, pausal accent right in the middle of this verse. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Pause. It wants you to, to feel this scene. What's gonna be Jonah's fate? Just think about this. There's a ton of chaos up until this point. Jonah got a word from God to go to Nineveh. He ran the opposite direction. 
gets on a boat, there's a crazy storm, everyone thinks they're gonna die, right? Jonah's just taking a nap. Jonah says, throw me overboard, the sea will calm down. He gets thrown overboard. He's in the sea, Mediterranean, in a storm. Think about the chaos of that moment. And all of a sudden he gets swallowed up. Pause. There's so much action. And now here we have this pause in the story. Jonah is alone with his God. He's absolutely alone with his God. And here we see God isn't being mean, God is being merciful. He sends a fish not to be mean, but to be merciful. Just like I said last week, this wasn't God paying Jonah back for his rebellion. This was God bringing Jonah back from his rebellion. And maybe the same thing is is happening to some of you this morning. God's trying to get your attention. But Jonah thinks he's dying, okay? Jonah's last thoughts before he dies, at least he thinks, is what? To pray. Jonah prays. Jonah prays to the Lord. So let me just ask you this morning, if you, if you just glance at this prayer, if you've read it before, maybe you read it before you came in here today, is this a prayer of repentance from Jonah or is this a prayer of thanksgiving? Is Jonah repenting or is he being thankful? He's being thankful. If you get to the end, it's a prayer of thanksgiving. Right? Verse, uh, verse 9. But also realize this. Jonah never is like, hey, I'm really sorry. Um, I'll never do that again. Right? I was wrong. You were right. You were God. I, am, I mean, there's none of this like repentance going on here. What does Jonah say? He says, help, I'm dying. He just, help. Right? I don't know how much you could say in a fish, right? Help. And so here we have in verses two through six, this imagery of him going down, down, down. He says, from the belly of Sheol, I cried out. What is Sheol? Well, in the majority of Old Testament references, Sheol is used to describe a place in which no one would want to go. It's this unwelcome fate that no one want to be. It's basically the opposite theological extreme to Yahweh. Right, so you have Sheol and then kind of where Yahweh is. That's the idea. And so the dominant feature for the inhabitants of Sheol is separation from God. So anybody who would feel like they're in Sheol, they're like, I am separated from God. That's the idea. So Jonah is employing language that's in the realm of death. He's not dead, but he's saying, the thing that I'm going through feels like death. That's what he's saying. He's hitting rock bottom. So remember again the language used throughout the book. God says in chapter one, verse two, arise, go to Nineveh. Then we see Jonah rise, and he didn't go to Nineveh. He went, says down. He went down to Joppa, and then he went down into a ship. Then he went down into the depths of the ship, and now finally he goes even further down into the very depths of the ocean. You see that in verse six. I went down. All right, this is like his lowest point of the book, and it wants you to know that. And then verses three through five, it shows you these like cosmic waters that are surrounding Jonah. He says, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, which is kind of an interesting idea if you really think about it because the you he's talking about is God. He says, God, you did this. You cast me into the, sheet, into the sea. But if you remember just a few verses before this, in chapter one, verse 15, we're told that the sailors, right, the mariners, they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. We see Jonah, even in his rebellion, like, what should we do to save ourselves? He's like, you need to throw me in. Jonah won't even dive in. That's how deep his rebellion goes. He's like, you got to do it. You got to throw me in. A grown man, just, you got to do it. Just imagine that. It's pretty intense. 
he gets thrown in by these sailors, but here he says, no, God, you did it. You threw me in. So he has this awareness that this is God's doing. God is the primary cause of this whole thing. The sailors were just the secondary cause. God is the ultimate originator of the throwing. Right? So, so look at the rest of the imagery here from verses 3 through 5. What is he saying? Right, he's saying, I was thrown in the heart of the sea. The floods surrounded me. Your waves and your billows passed over me, right? The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds wrapped around my head. This imagery here, look at it. Wrap, surround, over. His circumstances, he's saying, they're caving in around me, right? The imagery shows us that all he could see, all that he could experience in his sinking, all that he could see was his circumstances. He couldn't escape them, right? They were, they were caving in on him. Have you, ever, have you ever been in a spot like that? You're just so overwhelmed by the chaos of what's happening to you. It seems like that's all you can see. Has your sinking ever felt that way? This is what Jonah's describing. Why, what, what's actually happening to Jonah, though? Is it just that he's dying? Not really. There's actually a, an important chiastic structure here in this poem that you must see. I put it here on the screen for you. And the chiastic structure always shows you at the middle in the heart of it, what's, what's the main thing? What's Jonah saying to you in these verses? Well, he's showing you the source of his pain. And it's, it's in verse four. See, here in the middle of the chiasm, at the heart of this poetic imagery describing Jonah's experience in the belly, he gives you insight into what's defining his rock bottom. He's saying, I am driven away from your sight. That's it. Jonah's running He's trying to hide. And now he even goes passive on God. He's been the one doing it. And now he's like, I'm driven away. Almost like I'm not even doing it. I'm just, something pushed me away from God's sight. That's how he feels. Um, my favorite thing, one of my favorite things, okay, is when a baby turns into a toddler. And uh, I, I do this to all my kids. When they get dressed and you put the shirt over their head, when it goes over their face, I always go, oh, where'd you go? Where'd you go? And you pull the shirt down and, and they go, oh, well, here I am, you know, and they get all excited. And like, you can convince a toddler that if they close their eyes, that you can't see them. Like, they really believe that. It's amazing. Like, just, just, in, their, just in their heads. They're like, I can't see you, therefore you can't see me. And it's cute and it's funny, right? But here Jonah's like, I can't see you, therefore you must not be able to see me. All I see is the stuff wrapping around me, the waves billowing over me. That's what I see. I'm a driven away from your sight, right? But just because you run from God, just because you can't see him, doesn't mean that he can't see you. See, Jonah was trying to run from God's eyes, and it reached a lo the lowest point of his running, and the crux of the matter is he thinks God doesn't see him anymore. See, Jonah sees his abandonment, and he's using the words that he can to express his grief. He's at his low point. But whatever the, the grief that Jonah feels in his cry at this point, guys, there is another who entered into a state of forsakenness beyond anything ever imagined by human beings. See, Jesus, your Savior, the Son of God, had the Father turn his face from him. In Mark chapter 15, 
And when Jesus was in the metaphorical pit hanging on the cross, he could truly say, I'm driven from your sight. Why have you forsaken me? See, Jonah got himself into trouble. But Jesus, on the other hand, descended into the depths of Sheol because of your trouble. He sunk down into a grave that was not his own. And so what we see really is Jonah's call of grief here, it actually finds its ultimate echo in Christ's cry from the cross. And so does your cry this morning too. Any cry that you cry in a place like this is just a, a cry that finds its echo in the cross. Um, I'm, I'm not crafty at all, okay? And uh, I had a hole in my shorts and since the sun came out, I thought I should wear shorts one day. And so I YouTubed it, how to sew a hole. And I did. And it didn't look pretty, but the hole wasn't there. And I wore them, and it already kind of ripped. So again, I'm just not a great sewer or anything. But, um, but it's interesting. It really is. And uh, I, I've seen, actually, some really good tapestry. Some good tapestry. Are you familiar with tapestry? Do you know tapestry? Right? I brought an image for you. If you don't know what tapestry is, it's an amazing art form that's, that's become uh, less and less um, frequented. Um, so I made this here on the right. Um, just kidding, I did not make this, okay? Uh, but that is the front side of a tapestry. Right? There's all these threads that someone, that someone made, right? This, this is the image on one side, the back side is just an absolute mess, isn't it? It's not distinguishable. You don't know exactly what is on the other side. You can't really see it. See, the back of a tapestry is a mess. A tapestry is made by weaving together different colored threads and the images and designs are created by the interplay between the different colors, the different textures. But what is clear on the front is just a mess in the back. The back shows something of the image, but it looks more like a child's attempt than it does an artist's attempt, okay? It lacks the nuance, it lacks the clarity and the detail, where the front, what you can see, it's, it's, it's smooth, it's beautiful. But the back is covered with knots and loose ends, okay? I bring this up because, um, so Corey Ten Boom uh, went through the Holocaust. As a survivor, she wrote some famous, some famous books. She wrote a poem once called The Master Weaver's Plan. It'll be on the screen. She said, oftentimes he weaveth sorrow, praying to God, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. She went through tremendous amounts of suffering and darkness. Probably, I'm sure, many times wondering, I've been driven from your sight. But here she writes a poem in hindsight saying, no, I just see the underside. I see the backside. God sees the front side. See, on the one side of it, it looks like a mess. It doesn't look beautiful at all. But if you turn it over and you see the beautiful artwork that the artist is creating, it might give you a different perspective of your, your pit. And as Jonah hits the bottom, all he can see is the underside of the tapestry. But then the prayer begins to shift. We see the ascent onto dry land. Look with me the second part of verse 6 and following. It says, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
So Jonah's running, his running has brought him low. But it's God's faithfulness that's gonna raise him up. Right, Jonah's in a, a humble place. I mean, just look at the poetry of this prayer. He says, your sin cast me down, but God brought him up. Right, so sin cast him down. He says, to the roots of the mountains, which is way down, guys, okay? Roots of the mountains, way down. But God brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit. His sin cast him out, right? I've been driven away from your sight, but God brings him in. He says, my prayer came to you in your holy temple, which temple being where God dwells, right? He says in verse seven, I remembered the Lord. I remembered the Lord. In the place of the deepest darkness, I remembered God. So you're never in too dark of a place where God's ear isn't with you. I mean, just look at the imagery here. It's like, God, I can't see you. I'm driven away from your sight. God's like, I still see you. He's calling out to God, and God hears him. So there's eyes and ears, and God is, he's there, even in the midst of this pit in the darkest bottom he's ever been in before. Well, what's going to bring him up? We begin to see this turning point in verse 8. He goes, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Right? That, 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 it says, those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake the hope of steadfast love. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Well, again, what are, what are idols? Well, these things that people are clinging to, what is the idolatry, right? Well, it could be a created image that people worship. It could be really anything. I like this definition. I saw it this week from Matt uh, Smithurst. He says, idolatry is giving a good promotion. Uh, sorry, idolatry is giving a good thing a promotion it doesn't deserve. Idolatry is giving a good thing, a promotion it doesn't deserve. That's what it is. It's taking anything and putting it in the place that it's never meant to, to stay, in the place of God. And so that's why we ask ourselves the questions. If we want to know what it is that you're clinging to or what anybody's clinging to, what this would even be referring to is asking yourself, what is it that I, I don't think I could ever live without? What, what am I envious of that others have? What am I envious of that other people have? What, what are you bitter about that you lost? Well, what's the thing that you say without that, like life isn't really worth living anymore? Or I don't even know how to live anymore. Where do you go for refuge? What brings you the greatest source of comfort? Especially when you're in the pit. Where do you turn when life gets tough? Where do you go? See, anything that we cling to that's not God, here it's described as something that's worthless. Anything you cling to that's not God will ultimately prove to be worthless. It will have no value, and you'll see that it doesn't. It's not as great as you thought it was. It's not going to do what you thought it would do. Right? But more so, it'll ultimately cause you to forsake or forfeit something else. That's what it says. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. They forsake something. They lose something. And this is the imagery, okay? So this is Mother's Day. I'm going to keep rolling with these things. Here we go. Um, it's like my, my two-year-old daughter. Her name's Isla. She, uh, she's in a stage right now where she hoards everything. So she just has these tiny arms, and she'll literally be trying to hold five stuffed animals, four books, three toys, and walk around the house, and she inevitably drops things, and she gets really mad about it, okay? 
So she like carries these things around to her different corners of the house and plays with them and picks everything up and you know does this again. And so if she's holding all these things, if she's clinging to all these things, and I come up to her and I want to give her something, something good, uh, like ice cream sandwich, gave her one yesterday, right? She dropped those things for that, right? She's like, yeah, fine, here you go, give it to me, right? Like if I want to give her something though, what has to happen? You have to stop clinging to what you have. You have to put down what you have. That's the imagery here. If I cling to a worthless idol, I'm forsaking something else that could be mine, that I could have. Why? Because I'm clinging to something else. I, I can't just hold everything, right? So that's what we're being told here. Well, what do these people forfeit? What do they forsake? It says steadfast love, which is, which is uh, the word has said, right? Which is uh, the word translated steadfast love, or in other translations, it's translated grace. It's the word used of God's covenant making and keeping love for his people. This, is, this word is communicating the idea of a potential for a person in a higher position to act favorably towards somebody in a lower position. That's what the word means. So it's someone in a higher position like God acting favorably towards you. So if you're clinging to something else, it's not God that's taking the place of God, saying you're forfeiting that. So all in all, this is a warning to people to let go, to stop clinging to worthless idols and to not forsake the one true God. Well, who's Jonah speaking to? Why is he bringing this up here? He's like, I'm gonna go on a lesson of idolatry right now. Well, no, it's what Jonah's been doing. That's why he's saying it. Well, who's he, who's he speaking to? Who are those? Those are Jonah. And those are everybody. Those are not just Nineveh. Those are him. Those are Israel. Those are you. That's who he's talking about. They've had this plaguing problem in Israel of being unfaithful to God but having other mistresses and idols they were propping up and worshiping. So this is a warning then to not only Israel, this is a warning to anyone who would be giving their lives to something other than the one true God. Scholars say that in this verse, something remarkable just happened. Jonah has applied the sin of idolatry to all people, even to himself as a prophet. Idolatry was the source of his own sin, right? He thought it would be better to disobey and to hold on to the things that he loved rather than to obey and hold on to God. He valued what he loved. He valued his life. He valued his identity. He valued his even racial hatred more than he valued God. And now he realizes that he has kept him, uh, that, that what has kept him from the one great source of life and fulfillment and peace and joy is this thing. He's clinging to it. I need to let it go because it's worthless. See, in your pit, your idols prove worthless, don't they? When you're in your pit, don't they prove worthless? You finally begin to see. Like, oh, this isn't as valuable as I thought it was. For many of you, you might feel like you're in a pit because your idols are proving worthless. That's why you're actually in the pit. You thought that you weren't in a pit when your idol seemed to be working the way that you were hoping it was going to work, but then it stopped working that way. And now you're despairing about it, and it's brought you low. See, Jonah's at the very bottom. He can't go further down, and when everything in your life falls apart, 
when all your hard work and your plans don't amount to what you thought they would, when you are broken, when you're exhausted, and you don't know where else to turn, guys, that's when life gets good. That's when it finally gets good. Because again, Jonah thinks he's in a prison, but he's starting to realize he's in a hospital. But it's not simply being at the bottom that's going to change Jonah. It's not simply being at the bottom that's going to change you. You don't just go, I hope I hit rock bottom then. No, that's not the idea. It's not simply being at the bottom that'll change you. It's crying out to God when you're at the bottom that begins to change you. It's knowing that at the bottom, God is still there. And that he not only sees you and he hears you, but his grace finds you. Because what is the verse he says, what's the sentence he says next? Salvation belongs to the Lord. It belongs to him. God not only meets me down there in the pit, but he can do something about it because salvation belongs to him. This has been called the central verse in all the Bible. Why? Because it expresses the main point of the Bible. A salvation belongs to God. He owns salvation. I don't. I'm not the savior of my own life. I'm not the savior of anybody else's life. That's God's job. It's his possession. He owns that. And so you see this time and time again that there's really three kinds of people in the Bible. And there's three kinds of people even in the world then, right? There's the irreligious people, the religious people, and then there's gospel people. Irreligious people think they don't need to be saved. They don't need salvation. Religious people think that that salvation belongs to themselves. I can achieve it myself. I just got to do this differently. I got to do that more. I got to do that less. Then I'll be saved. I'm in the bottom. I got to claw my way out. I'm going to cut the seaweed off from around my head or whatever it is, right? I got to get out of this thing. But gospel people understand that salvation belongs to the Lord. That he meets me there in the bottom. See, please realize that this statement from Jonah, it's not a statement of just mere knowledge. He's not like dying. And he's like, I remember that, you know? No, this is a statement of belief. It's a statement of experience. And then all this happens. And then what happens? The fish vomits him out, right? Isn't that lovely? God, what? Restores the relationship between him and Jonah. That's the real need Jonah had. He didn't need to first be vomited. Jonah's problem wasn't the fish. Jonah's problem was him between him and God. And so that gets taken care of. And then the fish vomits him out. So really, Jonah was saved before he was saved, if you want to think of it that way. Um, It's kind of like, uh, I love having a clean house, okay? And I've come to grips with the fact that the way I clean, I'm not really cleaning, okay? Because I like things to look like they're clean. But I might just move messes to parts that I can't see as clearly. I even did, I remember the other day, I was like, I did this as a kid. My mom would be like, go clean the kitchen. And I'd go around with the wash rag and I would just wash the countertops and push everything onto the floor. And since I didn't really notice the floor, I was like, it's clean, right? But it's not really clean, is it? Right, you're just moving your mess. Some of you are like, yeah, my roommate does that, you know? And right now you're really annoyed, okay? I'm not trying to get you annoyed with your roommate. But nonetheless, right? I'm not really cleaning, what am I doing? I'm just moving my mess, that's all I'm doing. And if you think the fish is what you need to be saved from, if you think the thing that you're just in the pit of right now is what you need to be saved from, you're just moving the mess. Even if that circumstance changed, you're just moving the mess. Like, I just need a fresh start. I need a new city. You're just moving the mess. Whatever it is, you're moving the mess. 
You might have heard it said before, but it's worth saying every day that you don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Heard that before? That's what Jonah gets to here. St. John of the Cross in his famous book, The Dark Night of the Soul, said, to come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. To come to possess all, desire the possession of nothing. Sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? That's why we see Jesus in Matthew 10, 39. You must lose your life in order to find it. So here's the thing, guys. What's the big thing? Just maybe, maybe your place of despair and grief right now is actually God's mercy. Maybe it's not God's meanness, it's his mercy. Maybe it's just a, a place that you're finding salvation and it's the most unlikely place. And you just can't see it. You've probably heard of the, the lady Joni Erickson Tata. She was a very active girl growing up, but then in July 30th, 1967, she misjudged the shallowness of the Chesapeake Bay and she suffered a fracture between her fourth and fifth cervical levels and she became a quadriplegic. And she writes about this in her um, story, Joni. And in it, she talks about for two years, through her rehabilitation, all she experienced was anger, depression, bitterness, suicidal thoughts. She began to doubt everything that she ever believed about God. She was sinking. Right? She was in the pit. She was in the belly. But eventually she cried out to God and he met her. And this quote's on the screen for you. She says, this paralysis is my greatest mercy. My wheelchair was the key to seeing all of this happen, especially since God's power always shows up best in weakness. So here I sit, glad that I have not been healed on the outside. Can you believe that? But glad that I've been healed on the inside, healed from my own self-centered wants and wishes. See, Joni had gone down, 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 and God didn't leave her there. See, some of the best moments in my life, if we were just hanging out, I could tell you story after story. Some of the very best moments in my life were my worst. But I only can say that to you now. In hindsight, I go, that was the worst, best day of my life. Absolutely true. Why? Because it was there that I quit clinging to my idols. It was there I finally opened my hands. In those places, those idols became worthless and God's salvation and worth came into clear focus. All right, so if you're there this morning, what do you do? If you're here this morning, or maybe later this week, I'm not trying to be prophetic, someone's going to be in a spot like that, you know? What do you do? Just be like Jonah? Just be a better person? What do you do? Well, Jonah, guys, it is about Jonah. It is. But Jonah's also about you, isn't it? But Jonah's also about Jesus, isn't it? And when we see this in Matthew 12, Jesus tells us this. 
People come to him and they go, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. That's what Jesus said to them. You're like, well, that's awkward. He goes, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the sea. The story of Jonah is really about Jesus, isn't it? See, Jesus was given a mission from God, wasn't he? God, his Father, to go to the biggest, darkest place in the solar system. And he went without hesitation, didn't he? But in order to accomplish his mission, he didn't have to be thrown into the water, did he? No, he dove in headfirst. And he went down to the depths of our sin and was overcome with the waves of our guilt. And on the third day, he wasn't vomited out, but he reemerged victorious. So that when we hear from him now, we might obey. And when we are in the depths of the sea, we might call out to him. That we might stop clinging to whatever it is that you're clinging to. Not just because we want out of the fish, but because you actually want God. Why? Because we have seen and known his sacrificial love and relentless grace for us. See, maybe your deepest and darkest night is the very thing that God is using to bring salvation in your life. Have you ever thought of that? Maybe it's just the underside of the tapestry. You just don't see the other side. But one day you'll look back and you go, that was the best day of my life. Because it was there I, I really met God. And I remember that salvation belongs to him. And I remember that no matter where I am, he still sees me and he hears me and he has me. It's not meanness, it's mercy. So cry out to him. Because he sees you and he hears you. Father God, this morning, we thank you for the pit. God, we thank you for those places where, where life doesn't work the way we thought it was going to work. Where things feel like they're falling apart, God, because we know in those places you still got us. So Lord, would you soften our hearts today? Would you open our ears and open our eyes to behold Jesus and all that he went through for us? God, and I pray that um, for those who are feeling like they're in the belly this morning, God, that they would cry out to you. God, that you would loosen their grip from whatever they're holding other than you. And that they would begin their ascent this morning on the dry land. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.